everybody. Welcome to the Large Nerdron Collider podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how very excited we are about them. I'm Ariel Kasten, and with me, as always, is the incredible Jonathan Strickland. To expostulate what majesty is, what duty is, what day is day, night, night, time is time, what to nothing but to waste night, day, and time. Therefore, since brevity is the soul of wit and tediousness, the limbs are not what flourishes, I will be brief. Your noble son is mad. Mad call it. What is to find true madness? What is it but to be nothing else but mad? I didn't know we were supposed to be brushing off our Shakespeare monologues, Jonathan. You got to warn a girl. I mean, I, I, I messed that up out of the gate. I messed up the beginning of that, but that's okay. Cause you know, it's not like I'm performing the part of Polonius and you should always be ready to brush up your Shakespeare. Shakespeare. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Start (laughs) quoting him now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it like I haven't, I could more easily pull out right now. Uh, the the dead in a box monologue from Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I've looked at that one a little bit more closely than some of the Shakespeare stuff. Oh, that's such a good monologue. It, it is. It I is. actually I actually did have that memorized once upon a time as a comedic monologue for auditions, but it's been a very long time, so I couldn't do it anymore. But I just I do think that that's one of the the more brilliant comedic monologues that uh, comes from the modern era. There's that, and then there's one about cereal from um, a series of plays called the Norman conquests, which mm-hmm. uh, despite the name are not about <laughs> Normans coming to England and taking over the the country. It's about a guy named Norman who has slept his way through essentially a family of people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, you know, I've got a few comedic monologues. I've got the in a box, which is my all time fave. Um, I've got uh, close behind is the one that you wrote me specifically um, that I do use and I have up on some of my acting sites as an uh, example of my uh, monologue ability. And then um, after that, I've got like one that was actually written for young adults about being Cinderella's ugly stepsister, which sounds incredibly cheesy and dorky, but it consistently gets laughs. Um, but yeah, I, I've i learned quite a few Shakespeare monologues. I performed quite a few Shakespeare monologues, but I really do feel like that is one where like you don't use it and then you lose it. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's my brain so the, has so much storage. The Polonius one I have like it's like in, it's it's branded into my brain. But uh, there's another one that I used to do with Hotspur. Uh, but for my own part, true, my, my Lord, I would be content to be there with respect for the love I bear your house, um, which is from, you know, King Henry, the fourth part one and, and Hotspur. He's reading a letter and he's getting angry mm-hmm. as he's reading the letter uh, and he's having an argument with the letter (laughs) like there's no one else on stage but him and he's just getting more and more angry and to me it's hilarious it's it's it could be done as either a dramatic or a comedic monologue and it's Mm -hmm. one of my favorites but at this point i cannot quote it all the way through i'd have to refresh it same with uh uh there's a uh, the we few we happy few we band of brothers from henry v I used that one at the Georgia Renaissance Festival over and over and over again when I was playing Shakespeare. And I had that like I I was having fun. I was chewing the scenery with that one. And I could not for the life of me give you that that speech all the way through yeah. today. Well, I've uh, yeah. I, and the ones that 
so there was a Shakespeare monologue I did to get into the Renaissance Festival. We're talking about Shakespeare, guys, because there's a trailer for a kind of vaguely Shakespeare movie that looks pretty cool that we're going to talk about. But now we're on a tangent. So enjoy. Um, <laughs> the, I did the Shakespeare monologue to get cast at the Renaissance Festival about uh, this shoe has no soul in it. This shoe is my dog. No, this shoe on my other foot. I don't remember what it's from, though. <laughs> um, That's weird. I, I can't place that off the top of my head but then uh my my deep scholarship of shakespeare ended about 20 years ago so it's kind of i'm definitely rusty yeah you guys get to listen to me type because now i've got to figure it out well i'll tell you Um, that my my audition piece for the renaissance festival which this goes all the way back to 1999 was uh a comedic monologue delivered by peter cook as part of beyond the fringe the rumor was that he was pushed out on stage to stall because there were some mechanics that were not behaving properly in the show they were doing and they needed to, to stall for time. And he went out and delivered this monologue about how he could have been a judge, but he never had the Latin. So instead he became a coal miner and it's a, a funny, funny little bit. And that was what I auditioned with. And uh, yeah, it got me, got my foot in the door. And then, and then yeah. the festival slammed the door on my foot many, many, many uh, times. Yeah. Uh, I did Launce, uh, scene three, act two from Two Gentlemen of Verona, um, which I still love that monologue. It's great, especially if, you're, uh, if your casting panel is okay with you throwing shoes at them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Those were the days, right? Yeah. But I mean, other than that, like. I've done the out, out damn spot. I've done the to be or not to be. I've done friends, Romans, countrymen again, all for like, I, I was a part of a Shakespeare troupe for quite a few years, but those monologues I did as a part of the Renaissance festival and I did them ad nauseum. And yeah, I could, I could tell you bits and pieces, but I'd have to refresh. Um, yeah, Jonathan and I, anybody who's listened knows we both like Shakespeare. Um, Maybe we'll brush up on it. Um, now, now, seriously, now I've got like this urge to like, I've been working through some comedic monologues just to practice acting. And now I've got this urge just to jump back into Shakespeare. It is such such a great medium. And it's so interesting how there are so many different schools on how to uh, present it and perform it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's like, there are throughout my life, there are Shakespearean speeches where I would have delivered it entirely differently when I was younger than to how I would do it now. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that the younger version of me had the wrong take on the speech uh, necessarily. I mean, in some cases, definitely where I just was like, yeah, no, I didn't get what this was all about. But in most cases, it's like, no, it was more that um, that I was just in a different place in my life. And the speech meant something different to me at that point. And today it means something else. And that's what something is really cool about theater that can continue to live on well after it came out. I mean, it's one of those things that's remarkable, right? Because it's not like Shakespeare was the only playwright active in the Elizabethan era. There were plenty Mm -hmm. of others, but for the most part, most of their works haven't survived or at least not to the extent that Shakespeare's works does. I mean, you get, you have like Marlowe and a few others, but mm-hmm. they aren't held to the same height, which is funny because, um, uh, I, I kind of agree with what Douglas Adams used to say, which is that Shakespeare was brilliant with his histories and his tragedies. Uh, but his comedies kind of stink for the most part with a couple of exceptions. 
but uh, but to be fair, a reason why I think the comedies sort of stink is that we're so far removed from the pronunciation and vocabulary that a lot of the wordplay is lost on us because we don't use those terms anymore, nor do we pronounce them the same way that they did back in Elizabethan England. I get it. You know, you have to uh, present the phrases really well for people to get what, what, uh, what some of the puns are nowadays. I, uh, the comedies are my favorite. Honestly, I'll say the histories are, I've always struggled to get into the histories, but that's just me in general. No, I, I get um, it. Like, I think the Henry ad, I think, I think Henry the fourth part one through Henry the fifth in particular, I think those are probably the easiest to get into among the histories. You know, Richard the second, I think is, is a terribly, uh, underperformed play. I think it's really, really mm-hmm. good. Richard the third is far more famous, but it's also really long and really dense. Yeah. Uh, and also you have to be willing to go along for the ride with a, a villain as your, your main character through the entirety mm-hmm. of the play. And it gets a little wearing at the time. Yeah. Um, I, I, there, what's your favorite, uh, what's your favorite Shakespearean play? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> it, it changes it. Like, like you said, like when you're, when you're delivering Shakespeare, depending on where you are in your life, you're. It, that's a sorry. I'm going to go on a little bunny trail. The great thing about acting, the thing that makes each actor unique individuals, the the thing that makes it where there aren't wrong, you just have to make a choice and be honest about it, is because everybody looks at situations written in a story in a different way based on their personal uh, experiences, mm-hmm. and that means you could have seventy different ways to. Um, perform lines or a scene or a monologue that are all truthful and all legitimate and just all based in different people's experiences. It's what makes acting great. It's one of the things I like about Shakespeare is even though there are specific things and ideas he was getting across, there are so many ways you could take them even nowadays. Um, But uh, so it really kind of depends on where I am in life for a long time. I would have said taming of the shrew just because I really liked. I know a lot of people find it problematic, but I, I, to me, it was always like this incredibly strong woman and this incredibly strong man, like trucing. I, it was never, it was never Catherine giving up her freedoms or her opinions or her strength. It was them being like, okay, we're, we're equal opponents. We're gonna, we're gonna call a truce and and learn how to live together. And I feel like that's really important in life is learning how to live with someone else without giving up who you are. It, it's a, um, it, that's definitely a tough one because obviously there is this, this one interpretation of her subjugating herself to Petruvio, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I've uh, always, Petru- I've, I've always heard it as like very tongue in cheek. Well, it, 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 I mean, for one thing, we've, we're seeing it through a modern lens and a modern mm-hmm. interpretation. Right. But then there's a, another interpretation I've seen where it's a, that she is starting to embrace the concept of play that Petruchio, when he's, when he's saying that the day is night and the night is day and the sun is the moon and the moon is the sun and that sort of thing, that it's not that necessarily, or one interpretation is it's not necessarily that he's saying what I say goes and you have to follow what I say, but rather let us occasionally pretend that things are what they are not and that this is a playful thing and that she in turn learns 
that by playing, she can find joy and, and encourage joy in others as opposed to being shrewish. But yeah. that's just one interpretation. It doesn't make mm-hmm. it any more or less valid than others. And certainly in the presentation of the material, you can either have a story where it is about two equals finding a way to coexist with one another and then flourish, or you could present it in a way as a, a willful and independent woman being beaten down to the point where she's subjugated to a man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, I, I, I haven't done the research to know how it was originally intended. Um, but like, so that used to be my favorite, um, ones that always, always delight me are Midsummer Night Dream, Much Ado About Nothing and Twelfth Night. Um, maybe I'm a basic, uh, Shakespeare B, but, uh, <laughs> well, if so, then I am too. Cause Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite of all the plays. Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, such, such fun characters, such fun play, even though they're comedic. Um, and recently, uh, for a class for an Uta Hagen class, I did a deep dive into Lady Macbeth. And while my my um, interpretation of her was not what some of the other classmates necessarily thought of Lady Macbeth, I had so much fun with it. Just of this, I think we've talked about it maybe on the show, definitely in private, about, you know, here's this very strong woman who has to be cool and calm and collected and, and calculating all the time. So who is she behind closed doors? You know? Right. Right. Um, and, and, and yeah, we talked about it between the two of us and uh, Ariel was explaining to me her interpretation. And, and I thought it was a brilliant and valid interpretation, essentially that when she's not performing for anyone, when she doesn't have to be the, in control queen who does not betray her inner thoughts and feelings because of her position, because of her role that she cannot do that because if it does, if she does, then she shows weakness and that she has shows vulnerability that behind closed doors, she lets that veil drop. I thought that was a brilliant approach. Thank you. And Emmy, you might, you might argue that by letting that veil drop, it allows her some release. So she may not go, uh, insane in her sleepwalking later, but I don't necessarily think that's too true. I think, I think you can be incredibly stressed. I think you can be emotional. I think you can be a strong woman. You can have emotions. Um, you know, you can segment those off. How many, how many people, man or woman or other have had to segment off different parts of their lives to, to succeed or, or, um, survive, you know, um, yeah, and I, still I, just have the stress get to you. I think <laughs> once you've committed regicide <laughs> things, <laughs> Things can weigh on you, even if you yeah. have, even if you have the occasional cathartic emotional release. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, Macbeth has never been one of, uh, I guess I'm spitting and turning around on the ground. If you're superstitious, I'm doing that for you right now. What do we spin, spin, spin? Um, <laughs> I'm not super, sti- super superstitious. And also this is a podcast, but, um, yeah, no. So that one I've, I've recently enjoyed diving into even though it's not one of my faves we have talked so much about shakespeare (laughs) well i mean it's it's we don't ever have an agenda for the very opening of the show so yeah uh and it's again something we're very passionate about and Mm -hmm. we're both very geeky about and it has played a part in our professional lives to some extent like whether we've been performing in shakespearean plays or we've uh, uh, done parodies of Shakespeare, which I used to do at the Renaissance festival. I mm-hmm. played Shakespeare for a season. 
the character of Shakespeare at the Renaissance Festival. So like it's it's an important part and it's obviously also a literary influence that continues to inspire stories today where you know Shakespeare stole almost everything he ever worked on or at least he he took inspiration <laughs> from things that almost everything he worked on with the possible exception of the tempest uh but uh but clearly like those influences are still being felt today so i mean yeah people are still stealing and just rebooting stuff <laughs> yeah i mean there's so many different examples of modern films and television series that were at some point or another inspired by Shakespeare, but Mm -hmm. we're going to be inspired to now jump into our beloved 30 seconds or less segment. And uh, I will get started now. So first up, we got word that there is a how to train your dragon live action film in production. Uh, how to Train Your Dragon, obviously a, a beloved series, both in book form and in movies. But uh, yeah, bringing it from the animation to the live action world is what we can plan to see next. Uh, it might take quite a while before that comes to pass, but it is in the works. Uh, I got one quick thing to say on that, which is they are, I, at first I was like, live action, there's so many dragons, those can't be live action. They better be uh, practical effects, but they are aware that they've got a really fine line uh, to walk to make the dragons both likable and believable in a live action movie. Um, and they want to do that right. So hopefully they'll figure that out. Yeah, maybe they'll take some uh, some cues from Game of Thrones. They did dragons pretty well, not as like likable characters necessarily, but you know, you kind of felt like there was something there, right? Like they, yeah. they did a pretty good job with the creation of the dragons. Okay, you're up, Ariel. All right. Uh, uh, Emma Coring, who most people know as uh, Princess Diana in the fourth season of The Crown, which I have not watched. She was also in My Policeman and Lady Chatterley's Lover, is joining Deadpool 3 as the villain. We don't know who, uh, but we know that she's joining. Um, buffer, buffer, buffer. Hopefully we're at 30 seconds. Yeah, no, we've got about 10 seconds to kill. So, uh, cool. I mean, it does allow us to speculate who that villain might be. Might even be a totally original character and not based Mm -hmm. off someone from the comics. We don't know. Uh, honestly, like I'm cool with not knowing anything else about Deadpool until it comes out because they've already got my ticket. Same. Same. Cool. All right. Speaking about Deadpool, uh, uh, the fact that we have Wolverine coming into the MCU, not a huge surprise, especially after Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, where we got other characters. But uh, recently, Patrick Stewart hinted that perhaps he's not done with the MCU and moreover, that Sir Ian McKellen might also pop up. Now, how they might do that, who's to say, could be anything, could be in Deadpool, maybe it's something else, maybe it's just wishful thinking, we do not know. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's they're going to start their own uh, geek podcast. Yeah, Maybe they'll do Waiting for Godot, but in MCU. That, I would, I would watch that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would watch that. Waiting for Godot is, is so funny. Um, okay, next we have... Our first look of Lady Gaga as Harley Quinn in Folly Adieu, which is the sequel to The Joker. Um, they released it on Valentine's Day. Lady Gaga looks appropriately infatuated and kind of 
obsessed with the Joker in the picture. But other than that, it just kind of looks like Lady Gaga. It doesn't, you know, I didn't watch the Joker, so maybe it's just the the tone of the, the movie and the universe. But she doesn't, there's nothing about her that screams Harley Quinn. Yeah, me. I agree. Uh, I think they they took a very grounded approach with the first Joker film. So I'm guessing that's the same that they're going to do with the sequel. Uh, I, a lot of people are worried that this version of Harley Quinn is going to take a big step back from the more recent versions of her, where she's got more agency and it is more of her own character. And of course, in past versions, she was just completely in the thrall of the Joker and didn't have much, much to her own credit. Uh, and that is unfortunate. Hopefully that is not what we're going to get. Uh, I worry that it is what we're going to get because it kind of falls into the same sort of pathway that the first Joker tread, which is kind of aggrieved white guy <laughs> syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we can always hope that she's got more agency than that. We'll just have to wait and see. OK, yeah. um, sorry, I didn't mean to drag that on for super long, but no, it's it's I fine. Have... I dragged on how to train your dragon. So <laughs> I dragged a dragon, a dragged. A... Yeah. OK, from from Joker to poker. <laughs> <laughs> right. So. As Ariel was just hinting at, we have learned that Poker Face is getting a second season. I've been watching Poker Face. I'll probably chat about it in a second when we get through with this segment. Um, and yeah, it's it's really an entertaining show. It's got its own issues, I would say, but it's been fun. And it's nice to hear that they'll do some more of them. So that's cool. I also have some stuff to say about Peacock in just a second, but uh, we'll let Ariel talk first. Uh, Yeah, and the thing I'm going to talk about, I'm going to try to keep to 30 seconds. I'm super excited. Bill Watterson, the cartoonist best known for Calvin and Hobbes, uh, went into retirement a while back, like 28 years or something. And now he's back with a new book along with uh, caricaturist John Cash. Um, It is called The Mysteries. It's about a king who sends out a team of knights to investigate some strange disasters happening and only one returns later. It's not at all in this. It's not like when Bill Watterson did uh, a guest illustration uh, lock and key. Uh, It doesn't look at all like Calvin and Hobbes, but it, the, the sample images look brilliant. I love Bill Watterson's work and I am excited to read this new series, the mysteries. It's cool. Uh, Like Calvin and Hobbes was such a, an important comic strip for me when I was growing up. Like I loved that series and Mm -hmm. I have an enormous amount of respect for Bill Watterson for the way he handled his retirement, because unlike a lot of other creators, he was always concerned about like he did, he never wanted to give in to commercialism uh, and marketing and merchandising and all that sort of stuff. So all that Calvin and Hobbes imagery that you see, none of that is licensed. It's all been essentially pirated. Uh, cause that's not what he was about and that he was like, no, I told the story I wanted to tell the format of newspapers was such that it wasn't letting me express the story in the way that I felt it needed to be expressed. And so I, rather than compromise, I'm out and yep. man, like that's, that's a powerful statement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought I honestly, I thought it was because he had told his story and he was done, but you know, either way, great for, um, 
sticking sticking to your quality control. Now, before anyone at me asks me, I know that he did a stint on uh, Pearls Before Swine, which is another comic series, as a guest um, in the last twenty eight years, but um, that was brief. So yes, okay, finally. <clears throat> So Variety has a piece about how Paramount Plus, now Paramount Plus with Showtime, and Peacock are both having some issues because, like a lot of streaming platforms, they're losing money. The long-term revenue strategy is one that's unsustainable because you can't constantly add people. And so there's some questions about whether or not these will stick around or if they will have to collapse Uh, That's technically my 30 seconds, but I will say like, this is a continuation of what we've been hearing since last year with Netflix really hitting the, the first major stumbling block of its history. It's the same story that we've seen over and over again. And it may very well mean that this oversaturation of streaming services that we're in right now will be a very different picture by the end of this year. Yeah. Um, which as an actor is both, uh, very frightening and also, you know, again, I want, I want things to be made that are good and I want them to be sustainable so that people can enjoy them for many seasons. So, well, and, and like, I I can understand as an actor being scared of seeing platforms go away because it could be mean that opportunities are decreasing, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, you know, you don't want to be stuck in a quibby situation, right? Where you're like, Oh, I'm so excited. I landed this gig. And then like two weeks later, the executives are like, yeah, we decided to quit. We stopped it. We're, we're closed up shop. Like, like I said, it's, it's a double-edged sword. Like I, I definitely want more opportunities, but I also want those opportunities to last. Um, and you know, and be quality because there are, yeah. Uh, the, the more quality things you put out, the more people are going to subscribe to a streaming network you know, um, if you're putting out a bunch of crap, people might let it go. I, I know some people are like, I don't like anything that's coming out on Netflix. Not to say the stuff on Netflix was crap, but it just wasn't for them. And so they left. Um, but that's when Netflix was churning out like a bi- billion things of every kind of genre. Um, but uh, but at the same time, like I don't pay for every streaming service. I can't. So I also, from a consumer standpoint, am happy to um, be able to pare that down. A well, bit. yeah. And you know me, like, like there are certain streaming services I do not subscribe to. Like Hulu is one of them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I finally subscribed to Peacock. And of course, now I've got Apple TV plus because of our lovely listener who, who gifted us uh, some, some uh, certificates so that we could yeah. try it out, which is awesome. Thank you, Gregory. We, uh, we've been waiting until, uh, until we have had time to actually <laughs> sit and watch Apple TV. Um, but look forward to super jumping into that. Gregory is an awesome listener. And I, I started by watching the first episode of Severance, which I had already heard was what's like way up my alley and holy cats were they right? Because I, I watched it and I thought, man, this is such a fun original, not, not fun as in like, we having lots of fun, but more like a creative science fiction concept, high concept that is executed so well, I wouldn't say that it was like a billion percent original, right? I had heard of similar concepts within sci-fi, but the way they do it, it's so grounded and like, there's just enough humor without turning it into a comedy that I really dig it. 
I, I haven't jumped into that. I'm real honest. I have been focusing on um, my my gig at the beginning of next month, but um, that's that's this week. This week, I'm catching up on Last of Us, and I'm starting Apple TV, and I'm super excited. Well, before we jump into all of our, our trailer news, because spoiler alert, that's what like 90% of this episode is going to be. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. We, you know, Ariel has been super busy working on a gig that's coming up. Uh, we talked about it in our previous episode. She's her band is playing a a show uh, coming up soon at a local improv theater here in Atlanta. But uh, I have caught totally up on, on the last of us. Ariel is still working on that. And mm-hmm. um, uh, I want to say that her theory, she, she proposed a theory where every other episode was going to be an emotionally traumatic one. And then it'll alternate with one where you can kind of recover a little bit. Uh, episode five proves that she's, she's onto something because <laughs> one, three and five all destroyed me and two and four while they had their emotional moments did not. So I think, I think you might've guessed their secret sauce, Ariel. I'm very smart. Um, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it is true. Over the weekend, I sat down and I watched a sports event. The big game. The big game, um, of which there were many fun commercials. Or at least I expected that. I'm going to go off on a little tangent. Jonathan doesn't like watching the big game, uh, but I do. Um, I enjoy sports ball a little bit. And uh, I used to kind of like playing it. I was never good at it. Uh, But, uh, you know, so I want to watch the game. And I want to watch the commercials, but the commercials this year were all pointing you to go watch a full commercial elsewhere, whether it be a QR code or YouTube or something like that. And either I'm going to have to stop watching the thing that I turned on to watch to go watch your commercial and miss parts of the game or other commercials that, you know, historically have been fun or... I have to wait till the end of the event, at which case I've probably forgotten that I want to watch your full commercial. Um, it, I'm, I understand saving money and I understand like building up hype, but I wasn't a fan of the trend this year. Yeah, where where the commercial serves as like, here's the first half or maybe first third of whatever it is we're doing. And to see the rest, you have to go online. Whereas for me. I just saw them all online. So uh, the thing that Ariel was uh, trying to avoid leading into the big game ended up being the right way to just go ahead and consume the darn stuff. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we've got a whole bunch of trailers that were shown during that game. If you're wondering why we keep saying the big game, that's because the official terms are all trademarked. And uh, yeah, it's 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 dangerous to say that name because you can get you can get takedown strikes and stuff and copyright no well trademark notices really um things which, i learned today yeah no it's kind of lame i mean it's not kind of <laughs> lame it's extremely lame because you're like dude you're getting so much free publicity except you're saying no but on the flip side that's how protecting your trademark you? works if you don't actively do it then you lose trademark protection entirely i, I get so, it but i feel like that particular event is even though it is one specific event, I feel like it's used in the same way that like uh, iron hook connectivity strips <laughs> or 
wound coverage elastics. I don't know what the generic terms are or nose tissues are, you know, like you use the brand names interchangeable as the, like, that's a compliment, right? That's well, that, that that's what they want to avoid though, because yeah. you know, that's, they don't want it to enter into the common parlance because then you lose that trademark protection, yeah. which if you're using the trademarked term as leverage so that you can charge a truckload of money for 30 seconds of commercial time, then you can start to see why, but even so it is, it's a ridiculous situation. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about some of the movie trailers that were kind of use the big game as a debut platform. And first up we have the flash. Yes. Which was one of the ones that said, here's a tiny little clip go watch it online. So I eventually did that. I made a list. I had to keep a list during the game of things that I wanted to go watch later. Frustrating. Um, so this trailer focused a lot on the special guests that would show up in it. Um, I feel like it gave a good idea of what the plot would be without, um, giving away too much. And also flashpoint is a pretty dark storyline, which is what this flash movie is. Um, but I feel like the trailer at least had a good amount of heart and a, a good amount of like fun things in it that I didn't feel slogged down watching the trailer, which is conflicting to me because we all know that Ezra Miller has caused enough problems that they may not continue being the flash, but the trailer looked really good to me. Agreed. I, I feel much the same way. I certainly think that the trailer presents a, a, I mean, James Gunn has said that it was like the best DC film to date in the, in the modern DC universe. And the trailer seems to, to indicate that that could very well be the case. Uh, it was great seeing Michael Keaton's version of Batman on screen mm -hmm. and which is not a surprise. I mean, we've, that's been talked about for a couple of years now as this film was in development, but also hearing Danny Elfman's Batman score from the Tim Burton Batman films, was great. Like I loved it when that popped up as part of the score for Batman versus Superman, where you had the John Williams Superman theme and the Danny Elfman uh, Batman theme kind of interplay with one another. I thought that was the best thing about mm -hmm. that terrible movie. And yeah. so uh, I, I, uh, as in wrestling terms, I marked out when I heard the <laughs> Danny Elfman theme come up. Uh, I, I still feel very conflicted about this because of uh, the, the stuff that Ezra Miller did. I, I don't find it as easy to forgive mm -hmm. as some of the industry has seemed to indicate because some of the charges are so disturbing and serious that I don't think you can just say like, Oh, it's a mental health thing. They're working on it. They're trying to be a better person. Those are all good things, but the, the extent of the alleged uh, uh, crimes is such that I cannot easily say, yeah, I want to go see a movie with this person in it. So I, it's I'm, I feel a bit conflicted about that. Look, I, I I'm in the same boat. Honestly, I like I own Baby Driver, which was a very fun movie, but had a very problematic actor in it. Found out after I bought Baby Driver um, and I like the rest of the actors in it. So it is it is. It is, you know, it is hard. Yeah. How do you think I feel? My house is in Baby Driver. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of DC, something I did watch, I think I watched it this weekend, uh, was Black Adam. Have I already talked about that with you? No, you haven't. I have not seen it. So what was your what was your reaction? Um, I think the storyline was really weak. I think mm-hmm. and DC has this problem where like they I don't even know if it's the storyline and plot was weak. It used a fictional country and it felt like it was trying to make a political message with a fictional com- country, but it was neither a sh- good nor strong enough political message. And also, um, it didn't make it relatable to nowadays, I feel like. That mm-hmm. being said, the acting was some of like the street level characters of the non-superhero characters were a little blasé. Um, the all the superheroes I thought were fantastically cast and I really enjoyed watching every single one of them as their superhero I would watch them again as their superhero I felt like some of them didn't belong in the Black Adam movie and I felt like there was a lot of comedy that was really great comedy really well delivered but also did not fit in the movie like there's a moment where Dwayne Johnson as uh Fifth Adam I think so he goes by through most of the movie. It's his name. Um, drops somebody and tries to deliver a catchphrase and uh, doesn't get the timing right. It's a brilliant moment, but that moment within the larger moment didn't fit. Because mm-hmm. you know, we all know Dwayne Johnson has fantastic comedic timing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a little sad because I loved Hawkman. I loved... Uh, is it Dr. Fate? Dr. Feet. Yes. Uh, I liked Adam <laughs> Smasher. I liked Cyclone. Um, and I liked, I liked some of the street level characters. There were some really good moments. There were some really good and funny moments and there were some really good overall moments, but I just felt it was a little messy and a little disjointed and a little weak. Well, also I, I, I can't tell you the moment cause I don't remember, but my husband pointed out, they set up a Chekhov's gun um, and then never used it. They failed to pay off. Yeah, and I, like I, I've blocked it out of my memory. But when he told me, I was infuriated about yeah. it. <laughs> like that's just a basic rule. Like you know, you have basic rules of storytelling. You show, you don't tell, and if you yeah. show a gun, you gotta shoot the darn gun. Yeah. That being said, I really liked. So we all know that Hawkman and Black Adam have to fight at some point during the movie, and the movie's been out long enough that I don't feel like it's spoilers. Um, I really liked how like. Hawkman was not stronger than Black Adam, but he was so tenacious, which is what I want out of my Hawkman. So that was that was really good. That was those were good moments. All I want out of my Hawkman is for him to do a Brian Blessed impression the entire time. <laughs> I mean, I get it. Like there are a lot of to to have a Hawkman in the Flash is is kind of paralleling. Um <laughs> Yeah, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, you need to watch the 1980s film Flash Gordon, uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant uh, soundtrack by Queen and uh, Brian Blessed plays the the leader of the Hawkmen and uh, and he he leaves no scenery unchewed. It's it's a fun it's a fun old movie. It's definitely old. Uh, it doesn't completely hold up, but it's very no, confusing it, as a young child to watch very, The Flash. Very, very Flash. schlocky. And it's yeah, it's even when it was made, it was essentially trying to kind of embrace the pulp uh, hero tone and the comedic 
or at least the the over the top tone of the original storyline, which came out like 40 years earlier. So uh, mm-hmm. it was it was definitely a product that was searching for the right audience and the people who love it, love it. And everyone else is like, I don't ever need to see that. <laughs> yeah. Just like black Adam. If you loved it, that's super awesome. There were some good moments and there were some great characters. Um, well, something else I definitely don't need to see is transformers rise <laughs> of the beasts. We got this another new, trailer for that. <laughs> this new trailer didn't sell you anymore. No, it didn't. I mean, like they've already burnt every bridge for transformers for me. Like yeah. I've seen two transformers movies. They were not consecutive. <laughs> But they both did have Sam Witwicky as the protagonist, and that is the least likable protagonist of I've, I've ever watched, possibly. <laughs> like he is he is an unredeemable, terrible human being. He is just a horrible human being, not a villain, just a selfish, idiotic character that I cannot care about and therefore have no desire to watch. Now, to be fair, Rise of the Beast does not have that character in it. But I just no, I don't know. Anthony Ramos, who is delightful. Anthony Ramos was in Hamilton and in the Heights and a bunch of other stuff. That's great. And I hope that Anthony Ramos makes all of the money from this film. <laughs> but I will not care about it. Like, I, 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 okay. I also I also don't have a soft spot on my heart for the Transformers. Like, I recognize what the Transformers are. They were it was a cartoon that was made to sell toys. That's what the Transformers existed to do. The toys were awesome. They were great. Like people, people had to figure out how to make the toys be able to transform into different stuff. And they did it. And those toys were really cool. Yeah. Including like the current Lego transformer that also transforms without taking it apart. Yeah. That's to me, that's brilliant. Like that's just Mm -hmm. amazing creativity there. The stories, at least in the original run, left a lot to be desired. That doesn't mean that there weren't better storytellers who came along and actually tried to make really compelling narratives out of the transformer stories. It's just that I never really bought into that. I never really cared about it. And when I watched the films, the films were so weighted on spectacle and that spectacle was all computer generated and like the transformation sequences, it just looked like flashy metal gears and stuff in front of your face. And then suddenly it was something else. It never looked like the thing that was a robot went through a logical set of steps to turn into I, whatever else it was. I agree. And I had that same problem with um, Cyborg in the Justice League movie. Um, yeah, no, I get it. This look, I I am not excited to watch rise of the beasts either there was one moment in this trailer that i thought was cute which means it's to me better than the last trailer may uh, what was the moment that was cute it was where anthony ramos was talking to one of the sassier uh transformers whose name i can't remember at the moment the porsche though maybe well it's the reason why i say porsche is because the the porsche logo is extremely prominent <laughs> in this rise of the beasts trailer. And, uh, it almost feels like it's more like, Hey, this is also a commercial for Porsche. You know, the, the, the car brand that needs to be advertised because who hasn't heard of Porsche? I mean, uh, I don't know. I I'm just, maybe I'm just grouchy and that's it. That's what we can just chalk this up yeah, to Jonathan's I mean, a grouchy man. 
That that is true. Well, did the the new Guardians of the Galaxy trailer at least make you not a little grouchy? Uh, I thought this one was a great trailer. Uh, it's still obviously indicating that this is going to be a truly emotional film, that it's got a lot of finality to it. We know mm-hmm. that uh, Dave Batista, for example, it, this is the last of the movies he's going to appear in as Drax, which at least suggests that his character may not survive throughout the, the film. Maybe he does. Maybe he goes to live out the rest of his days somewhere else when he like he's finally satisfied or something. We don't know, but my money is on. He doesn't make it. There's a um, lot of crying in the trailer. There's a lot of crying in the trailer, but we I liked bits of it. I also thought the 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 fleeting hint we get that perhaps Peter Quill and Nebula might harbor some sort of feelings for each other was really interesting. I wonder that if that's hilarious. just going to be a joke or if that's actually going to play out more in the movie. I did not expect to like Karen Gillan as Nebula as much as I have. Uh, she's brilliant in that role. Um, she is great. Yeah, it's it, well, it's a character who doesn't have any real humor to her at all when you first mm-hmm. encounter her in the MCU. And then as the series goes on, uh, they really they really use her uh, like she's very similar to Drax, right? Like she she misinterprets things. She doesn't understand references. She gets things wrong all the time, but she's got 100 percent conviction when she's delivering whatever the line is. And that's where the the comedy comes out of. So very similar to Drax in many ways. But Karen Gillan is just so good at delivering those moments that mm. it really it, it it works. It sells. Yeah. Yeah. She 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 has risen in in my ranks of actresses that I, I really enjoy. Um, I liked the Galaxy of the Guardians, the Guardians of <laughs> Lord Gar- Guardians of the Galaxy three trailer. This one more than the last one. It felt a little less dire. Yeah. Um, and I also liked I like the look of Adam Warlock. So I'm excited to get to see him do his thing. I like that actor. We've been waiting for so long. <laughs> <laughs> for Adam Warlock since Guardians of the Galaxy 2 uh we've been waiting for the the emergence of this character like I was worried that this was going to be an unresolved Chekhov's gun yeah uh listen I just hope they bring Ben Browder back uh as his uh peacekeeper gold peacekeeper guy uh he wasn't a peacekeeper in Guardians of the Galaxy 2 but he might as well have been which is uh the militant uh race in um Farscape well we also got another spot for the movie that i have famously been a little skeptical about which is dungeons and dragons Mm -hmm. i like that you put this down as the DD big game spot uh because i read it as their big game spot and it's only a 30 second trailer (laughs) no it's for the big game because we can't (laughs) say the other name for it the thing is they didn't i don't think they played it during the big game well, it was it, when I was doing like my rounds on YouTube because I didn't watch the game, as Ariel mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just on YouTube looking for trailers that were debuting around the time of the game. This was one of the ones that popped up and uh, not being able to verify one way or the other. I just put it down as the big game trailer. No, that's fine. That, I mean, they they released it around that time specifically for that. It's a 30 second spot. It's mainly just action. I'm going to be real honest, but that kind of made me more excited about the movie. There is one moment where uh, Michelle Rodriguez 
takes like a bow and arrow and sticks it around, I'm guessing they're bad guys, to adversaries' necks and like pulls it and like uh, clotheslines them with the arrow or the bow. And I thought that was so much fun. Yeah, it was a creative use of the weapon, like really explains how the fighter class is uh, important in D&D because having that proficiency with all the different weapons lets you do stuff like that. And, you know, without it, you probably wouldn't be able to get through and... They look, I am sure there's going to be more like relationship setup and character setup that uh, will make the jokes funnier and make those moments better. Um, you know, they don't want to explain too much because then it goes into telling and not showing. Yeah. Um, I honestly like that moment made me feel like something I would have done as a fighter in DD, to be completely honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't always play chaotic characters, but sometimes my parties bring that out in me. Um, but, uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm getting from your tone that this still did not give you any hope for the movie. It's, I wouldn't say I don't have any hope for it. I'll say that I don't, first of all, okay. Based on what I've seen, I think it's going to be better than any other D and D movie, but that is hardly a, a very high bar. bar. Yeah. It's a very low bar to clear. Uh, I think it will be a perfectly adequate fantasy action film. I do not think it's going to join the ranks of the fantasy films that I really love and will go back to watch again and again. So, and some of the films I really love, a lot of people would argue do not merit a lot of acclaim because they were just kind of, they were okay. But when you're looking at the fantasy genre, there are a few standouts like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, not the Hobbit stuff, but the Lord of the Rings trilogy yeah. that are that are viewed as like this is the top of the top for this genre. But then you got a really big gap and you have a whole bunch of movies that are kind of in the middle where they're OK. Uh, and maybe some of them are super schlocky, but they're entertaining. Maybe some of them aren't very schlocky, but they have their own drawbacks. And then beneath that, you've got everything else. And I think yeah. this one's going to kind of fall into that middle ground for me, but for other people, yeah. maybe they will love it. Maybe it'll become their favorite fantasy film, which would be awesome. Listen, I super respect your opinion. I don't even necessarily think you're wrong. I suspect that you will be correct, but I hope that it surprises you. So do I. I mean, if I, if I go into it and I come out and I say, man, I was completely wrong about that. I love that movie. That's the best problem in the world to have to come onto a podcast and say, y'all, I was wrong. This movie rocks. That's a great, that's a great problem. Which is exactly what you're going to say when you watch fast X. I'm sure. Yeah. After I get my way through fast <laughs> one through nine plus Hobbs and Shaw and any other spinoffs I don't know about. Um, yeah. So we also talked about, we also looked at the trailer for fast 10. Uh, and, um, yeah uh jason momoa is in it um as the Mm -hmm. bad guy because you know every movie has to have a big beefy bad guy in it (laughs) or a big beefy antagonist if not an outright bad guy so we've had like a big beefy charismatic antagonist yeah because we had dwayne the rock johnson and john cena and not all of these were like quote-unquote bad guys but they were antagonists right they Mm -hmm. opposed uh the family and uh, Dom Toretto. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we get Jason Momoa being Jason Momoa. He's essentially Aquaman, but in a car. Yeah. I, I mean, 
I had a friend after watching the Fast X trailer from the Super Bowl go, uh, these are these are the expendable babies, the expendables babies. And mm. I agree. It's the expendables, yeah. but they're all younger, not retired. Ish esque. Retired yeah, esque. Not all of the like I, I yeah, I just don't know, like I don't know. It doesn't I watched expendables either two or three. <laughs> I, 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 I saw you. the, I saw most of the first one, but I, I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, uh, it, it, it never has hit me. I'm not a car person, so that's mm-hmm. a big part of it. Right. Like I just yeah. couldn't care less about cars. It's okay. And I still love you, my friend. That's fine. Yeah. We all have our drawbacks and mine is that I could not care less about cars and car related media. Um, we already established that with transformers. Right. So, but, uh, but like clearly these are movies that are designed to be viewed in a cinema on the big screen with the crazy surround sound so that you get sensory overload as these impossible scenarios play out on the screen in front of you. Yeah. But again, because they have gotten so crazy, so, uh, ridiculously over the top that, it's divorced from reality to me. So mm-hmm. I just can't buy into it. I, I, I watch it and I just think, well, this is just so ridiculous that I can't even have fun with it. You might as well yeah. in the next movie, have them drive a car straight up the side of a skyscraper <laughs> from the ground all the way to the top. Cause it's just as realistic as the other stuff we're watching. And why not at this point or have a car, you know, be able to drive in the middle of the sky. It, it doesn't have any rockets or wings. Okay. It's just driving through the sky. Why not? Okay, so you won't watch Fast X. You'll just watch Space Oddity. Listen, there were a bunch of trailers that came out around the big game that were not connected to the big game or marketed as a part of the big game. Um, that all, all honest, most of them, not all, most of them look pretty cool to me. Um, <laughs> we're running very long, so I don't know how long we're going to, we're going to spend on each of these, but we'll definitely put them in the show notes. The first is Space Oddity, which is something I didn't know about till Jonathan found it, um, about a guy who's like, I got nothing left to lose. I'm going to go to Mars and I know I'm never coming back. And then just like his family struggles around that. And like what happens when you build, when you do build relationships on Earth and do your priorities change? It looks delightful. Yeah, this looks like a a really interesting film because like the basic premise is like, well, let's let's assume we've reached a point where we can send a human being to Mars. I mean, they're already talking about it. But but we also know that it's a one way trip, that there is no way to get the person back to Earth. So when they go to Mars, that's where they're going to live out the rest of their lives. So some people look at it and say, well, that's just a death sentence. Others might say. No, you're going to live out your life, but, and yes, you will die and you will die on Mars as opposed to on earth, but you'll eventually die here on earth. It's not like it's a death sentence. It's just, you're living out your life in a different place. And, um, the, the character encounters a young woman named Daisy who, uh, that's who he starts to kind of develop feelings for and develop at least a close relationship, uh, like a friendship, if not a romantic relationship, and that this is uh, going to end up uh, affecting how he feels about the decision and, and to question whether or not his decision is a good one. Uh, it hasn't had the best reviews because it actually was premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last summer. It just hadn't been released to wide release yet. 
But uh, it was directed by Kira Sedgwick and mm-hmm. Kevin Bacon shows up in it. So not a big surprise there, but yeah, they, they, it looks interesting to me. It's an interesting concept uh, for it. And then you've got some other fun, geeky folks in it, like Simon Helberg of Big Bang Theory fame. I think of him as Moist from Dr. Horrible sing-along blog. Mm-hmm. He's in it as a character named Dimitri. So you get to listen to him do a Russian accent, which to me is worth the price of admission. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's going to be, I, I think I'll enjoy it. It's not going to be like a, a ha ha or a super exciting movie, but it'll be interesting. Um, okay. Next we have school spirits, which is about a girl who gets murdered uh, supposedly, but doesn't know by who and ends up haunting her high school with a bunch of other ghosts who got also killed at high school and are just stuck there now. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of like the same rules you would find for Beetlejuice where you are limited. Your existence is limited to haunt the place of your death, which I mean, I guess a lot of ghost lore is based around that too, right? Like the ghost is tied to a physical location because that physical location is where the, the person who would, uh, evolve into a ghost was, uh, was extinguished. And so it's part, part mystery, part like teenage dramedy. Uh, there's a lot of comedy in the, the preview that we saw, but, uh, Mm -hmm. obviously if you're talking about solving a murder and you're talking about teenagers in the school, there's some heavy stuff there too. Uh, but yeah. yeah, she ends up as a ghost joining kind of like a, a ghost support group at the school of other people who have suffered, you know, a tragic fate on school grounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought I thought it looked uh, interesting. I mean, uh, interesting enough yeah. for me to at least check out the beginning of the series. Yeah, um, I like it looked interesting to me, too. It, it had a really good balance between the suspense and the the comedy and the I guess the feels as much feels as a trailer can give you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, I'm for a high school drama. This is one of the ones that I am more excited about. Yeah. Same here. Uh, like I haven't felt any need to watch. What is it? Is it Wolfpack? That's the one mm-hmm. wh- that, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller has, has appeared in now. I haven't watched any of that, nor did I watch teen wolf. Uh, I, I, it, it takes a special kind of pitch for me to get invested in a, in a teenage series at this point, simply because I'm so far removed from that. I don't have kids. And so I don't have that connective tissue anymore. I'm, I'm so beyond the drama of being a teenager. I don't even have any context of what being a teenager today even is like, Okay, because the world is so different from when I was a teenager. I totally get that. Well, do you, do you have better context for what it's like to be a very creepy child nowadays? I mean, I've always had that <laughs> always. Yeah. So, uh, we are now at the point of the episode where we have to talk about a trailer that I picked because it's a horror movie trailer and it's not an episode of large and drunk collider. Unless I make Ariel watch a trailer for a horror movie. You made me watch two scary trailers this week, Jonathan. I, I would only say this is, I'd say there's one only and a one. half. <laughs> yeah. One so and a half. <laughs> we're talking about a movie that actually was, was, uh, scheduled to be released back in 2020, but then a little thing called COVID-19 totally messed that up. And it's yet another take on the Stephen King story of children of the corn. This particular children of the corn film, 
uh, is sort of a prequel. It's, it's how the children end up. uh, If you don't know what the premise is behind children of the corn in the story, some adults end up stopping in this little uh, town. I believe it's in Nebraska and discover that all the adults in the town have been killed by the children who live in the town and that the children have a society where at the age of 19, you are sacrificed to an entity called he who walks behind the rose. And, uh, it's a horror. R O W S not R O S E. Yes. Yes. The rose of corn in other words, and that, uh, the, the characters have to try to find a way to escape these evil children. Well, this series or this, uh, movie is essentially the, the unfolding of how a, a child encounters this, this entity is seduced by that in the sense of she is convinced by the entity that this is the right thing to do and then leads the children on their evil crusade to extinguish all the adults. So uh, the trailer looks well done. What I will say is I never watched the original. I never read the Stephen King story. Uh, I the, the only knowledge I have of the original Children of the Corn movie, and this may not even be correct because when I was Google image searching, which, man, my ad choice is going to be weird now, uh, <laughs> was uh, Disney Adventure. There, Disney used to have a like a comic book slash reader's digest for children called Disney Adventures. And I used to get that as a subscription or buy it in the grocery store when I had enough allowance money. And there was one Halloween episode where they went into like special effects makeup. And I think they had special effects makeup for children of the corn where it looked like you kind of had like kernels boiling off of your face. Looking like Google searching for like children of the corn disfiguration or special effects makeup. I couldn't find any of that. So this might be a completely false memory I've just made up and has really stuck with me. Yeah, I you describing that makes like rings no bells for me. Now, I've seen there are a lot of children of the corn movies, y'all. There are like 11 or 12 of them already at this <laughs> <Wow>. point. And <laughs> I did um, not know that. Well, and they're not all like sequential either because people have retold the story multiple times. Um, but I, and I haven't seen all of them, so I can't say that that definitively never was but, part of children of the corn. But you did read every Disney adventures. I, I all I'm trying to say, Ariel is that that doesn't <laughs> ring any bells for me. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say. All I can say is that I am not familiar with this uh, grotesque description that you have just look, given us. I am certain that there was this, uh, there was this special effects makeup in a Disney adventures magazine, whether it was attached to the children of the corn, or I just think that because they used corn as a part of the makeup process. I don't know if anybody out there read that issue. Let me know if you remember. Um, That being said, I will not watch this new movie, no matter how well it looks like it's done. I know I've been delving more into scary and more into Stephen King, but I was recently talking about uh, like middle school reading material for kids and the Lord of the flies came up. And I remember how much that book and that movie a really old movie, like super disturbed me. I, I'm I'm done with creepy little children for a while. Yeah. Well, uh, children are a never ending source of creepiness for me. And whether it's the creepy girl who keeps crawling out of my TV, I am so tired of that mm-hmm. BS, by the way. Or we're talking about those twins at the hotel I have to go to all the time for work, telling me that I need to play. You know, I get it. You could get. I mean, fed you do up. need to play more, but yeah. Well, I <laughs> I will say that uh, 
the feeling I get from watching like a really well done piece that has creepy children in it. The feeling I get from that is the same feeling I got when I walked through the center of puppetry arts museum after hours mm-hmm. one day with all mm-hmm. the lights off mm-hmm. because seeing all the dead puppets just staring at me and then occasionally one on a actuator would turn its head. That gave yeah. me that same feeling. Listen, so <laughs> listen, middle of the day. And I love the center for puppetry arts, but middle of the day, if you go into the museum and you're like the only person there, it's still a little creepy. I'm going to mm. say, and I love puppets. I've done puppeteering. Um, okay. On from creepy to just uh, a really cool trailer. Jonathan said this might be made just be made for him, but it is also made for me. There's a movie coming out called The Lost King. Apparently it's based on a true story that I'm not familiar with, but it's about a woman who kind of gets aged out of her job and then goes to try to find, is it Richard III's bones? It is. In real life? (laughs) Yes. This actually, this actually did. Okay. Some variation of the story actually did happen. Now I say it like that because there are conflicting narratives over who had the most involvement at different stages. This particular film is taking the the position of the woman in question who became uh, fixated on trying to find the remains of Richard III. So Richard III famously was defeated at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Henry Tudor, <laughs> who would become Henry VII, uh, was victorious in that, and Richard III was killed in that battle. But his body had been lost to time. It was said to have been buried in like a gray friars church grounds, Mm -hmm. but that church grounds had long since been lost over the, the ages as the, the town in the area had grown. And so this woman becomes obsessed with Richard the third one, because she thinks that he has been unfairly maligned largely by Shakespeare and that, yeah. uh, the, that the trailer starts with her watching the play and saying, I don't think he'd be this bad just because of a, dis, a, a disfiguration, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, the the story is about her kind of solving the mystery of where his bones might be based upon historical accounts and like the geographic features of the town. And it is true that several years ago, a decade ago at this point, essentially, that uh, an excavation at a uh, parking lot or car park, if you prefer, in England uncovered the remains of Richard III, which had been thought to potentially have been lost forever. There were a lot of people who assumed that his body had been thrown into a nearby river. Uh, So this is kind of the story behind that discovery with the, the bias being on one side's version of that story. But just know that there are other versions. Like it's not just hers. Uh, there are others that conflict somewhat with her account, but uh, mm-hmm. it is a fascinating little bit of history. And the fact that they, they dramatize this where the woman uh, frequently imagines Richard the third appearing before her is really interesting to me. Yeah. At one point she says, I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm imagining you, uh, which, which is, I didn't expect her to say the trailer looks great. You should check it out. I think I will definitely, uh, I'm not going to say a thing. I will watch this movie. This is, this is going on my watch list. Um, something I don't know if is going on my watch list, uh, is the new great expectations series that is being 
um, produced by Tom Hardy and Ridley Scott. Yeah. Um, it's, I never read Great Expectations, but I did not know that it was as creepy as it is. And I know Charles Dickens does creepy stuff. Christmas Carol is technically creepy. I didn't know this was so creepy, Jonathan. Well, this is the this is the half scary trailer. I mean, it, it, it does have creepy elements to it. Uh, Ms. Havisham in Great Expectations is uh, certainly an eccentric woman, but you could easily imagine her as being very creepy, especially when you start to learn more and more about her, her motivations and her uh, her her perspective in life. But she's a uh, a woman who is left at the altar. And so that experience forever changes her to the point where she wears her wedding dress from that point forward. Um, at one point she has lost one of her shoes and she just continues to move around walking in one shoe. And she, ends I mean, up I've being, done that. I've done, huh. I've done that. I've done that. Well, she, she becomes, she becomes this, this uh, very powerful influence for the protagonist of the, um, the, the, the story Pip Philip Pirip, better known as Pip. And yeah, this trailer, like I had forgotten how uh, dramatic that story is and how much violence is in it. And like, as I was watching the trailer, I was, cause I, I haven't read great expectations since I was a kid, but I did read it. And as I was watching it, I was thinking like, wow, I, I remember the basics of this story about Miss Havisham and her vendetta against all men and her desire to make Pip's life miserable because he's male. Uh, but I didn't remember any of the other details. And as this trailer was playing out, I was like, man, this is hardcore. And uh, yeah, I think it's a really effective trailer. It's definitely grittier than what you typically see with a Dickensian adaptation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of effective trailers, we got a trailer for a Tetris film that is coming out on Apple TV plus. Um, this is not as far as I know, the same Tetris trilogy movie, uh, threequel that we were going to get. Um, but it looks really good. It stars Taron Edgerton. Um, they kind of like, despite it being like based on the real bonkers story of Tetris, like they put in like little bits, uh, during action moments of like, them going eight bit. It looks this. I did not think I could be so excited for a Tetris film. Yeah. So this is the story behind the uh, discovery of Tetris by the Western world, because Tetris was programmed by a, a man who was living in the then Soviet union. And the story about how, how do you get something that was created in the Soviet union so that you can produce it as a video game that's accessible to the rest of the world because the Soviet Union was notoriously closed off to the rest of the mm -hmm. world, especially, well, the capitalist world. And uh, so this story is, is sort of a recounting of what that process was like. And by the way, uh, I have covered that story before in tech stuff, at least part of it. And um, spoiler alert, it does not, it does not see great, riches and acclaim fall on the the guy who programmed it because the Soviet Union's stance was that the state owns everything not the individual so yeah did not yeah. he did not enjoy great success from it at least not initially it took 
a long time for any acknowledgement really to fall his way. But yeah, this was a, this is one of those games that because it really became known in the West at the same time as the launch of the game boy would be a, a huge part of the game boys success story. So I, I am also yeah. excited. I also think that the style they've gone with is really engaging. I, I think so too. Um, I actually had a friend cause I shared this trailer as soon as I saw it on, I've got a, like a discord friend group that uh, will share trailers so that we don't miss them, you know? And a lot of the things that we talk about here, I share with that group. So I shared the Tetris trailer. No one had found it yet. And I had a friend pop up saying, I got to see the machine that that game was created on um, during a job interview. Uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, if you yeah, watch the, the film, I'm sure you'll understand why. <laughs> that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm just super excited about it. Also, not going to lie, they play my band plays the Tetris theme. It's actually called the Korobushka. I might be mispronouncing it, but that's how we say it. It's a Ukrainian folk tune is what I know it as. Yeah. Um, and th- like there's a dance to it. The SCA does a bunch of stuff to it, but my band plays it. And in the trailer, they, I don't know if it's a full mashup, but they interspersed Final Countdown with it. And now, like, I desperately want to recreate that version of the song. <laughs> just gonna, just saying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we have a couple uh, superhero uh, things to talk about. I'm going to say briefly because we are running long. Um, the first is that Leslie Grace, who was the star of that Batgirl movie that uh, got scrapped, um, says she saw clips of it and thought it was really good. Yes, she was essentially saying that the the narrative of it being positioned as unreleasable, in her opinion, that doesn't hold water. She said, no, it was, you know, the version I saw, obviously it wasn't a finished film and there were still supposed to be reshoots and we were looking to get the money to fund those reshoots, but mm-hmm. that the version she saw was good. And yeah. she is extremely diplomatic in the interview mm-hmm. where she talks about this. Uh, she, she and Brendan Fraser both were very diplomatic. Yeah, they, they, uh, Fraser, Fraser. they, <laughs> but yeah, they both, they both were very diplomatic in it. Uh, obviously because, you know, you gotta be careful. You don't want to burn bridges. You don't want to get a reputation for being difficult to work with, even if you're right. And the studio is wrong. You still have to be careful. So, yeah. uh, I, and I, I don't want to put words in her mouth. I don't want to suggest that perhaps she feels more uh, she has more strong feelings than what she indicates in the interview. Her interview may be 100% her perspective, in which case she has a much more mature perspective than I would have if I were in her Mm -hmm. position. Well, I mean, so I don't think we're ever going to know like the full truth because it basically comes down to a he said, she said at this point for most of the public, right? Um, that's that's even the wrong phrase, like just what the studio says versus what the actors say. Uh, she did not see a full finish. She just saw clips from it. And yeah. one, I think it's amazing that she can watch back her performance and think it's really good. I have a hard time with that. I'm still growing as an actor, but I know a lot of actors have difficulties with that. So one, I think that's fantastic. Um Brendan Fraser talks highly about her and I think his work ethic and his acting ability is fantastic too. So, you know, there's that, that being said, the clips might've been great, but as an overall movie, like it it may not have fell to the acting. It might have fallen to editing or the script or the continuity of the story or 
you know, even just the fact that the amount of reshoots they'd have to do to get it to where they thought it was going to be profitable was more than they wanted to spend. Yeah, like, or it could be that David Zaslov said, I need a tax write-off. Let's that's, let's ditch that this is one. Entirely possible too. And, you know, studios will say very um diplomatic things sometimes to cover their butt, but I don't know. I I I can't prove uh, I don't know either. But I worked for David Zaslov, so I'll just say that if that, in fact, is what happened, I am not surprised. So I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying. Yeah, (laughs) I get it. You have more insight. But the other thing is Leslie Grace should be diplomatic because just because they they scrapped the scene. One of the things that Brendan Fraser said was that, you know, it's sad that uh, this is another um, example of inclusivity that that children, young girls are not going to get to see and say, ah, there's a Batgirl that looks like me because Leslie Grace is Latina. Um, But there is a chance that they might make a different Batgirl movie. She hasn't shown up in the DCEU, so they could reuse her if, in fact, her performances were good. She could show up elsewhere. She could show up in the Batman in the the other verse. This is not what it's called, is it? Elseworlds. Um, The Elseworlds. Same thing. Um, So, like, yeah, you... You never know what opportunities will open when a door closes, and I hope more opportunities open up for her, I guess. I, I also do want to say that I'm sad we don't get to see Brendan Fraser playing a bad guy. Uh, yeah, I get it. Uh, my folks just watched the old George of the Jungle over the weekend, and now I'm, I'm feeling I have to go back and watch some, Java, of, Java, some of that Java, stuff. Java, 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 Java. But uh, no, I agree. Uh, he was the Firefly, um, which is not a... Uh, it's not a villain that I'm super excited about, but I I'm always excited to see people play outside of their normal cast type. And I know yeah. that, I mean, I would, I would posit that robot man is like an anti-hero. Sometimes he's not a very good person. Sure. Um, yeah. No, I, Patrol, yeah. So. that entire group is filled with not very good people, but it's not outright villains, but very, usually very, very, very damaged literally in some cases, people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know what? There's been a lot of superhero movies in the last mm-hmm. couple of decades. A lot of them. Uh, superhero movies, superhero series, animated films, animated series, podcasts, all sorts of superhero material that has just flooded the mainstream culture. What do you do if you are freaking tired of superheroes well uh kevin feige is that correct feige? listen i can never pronounce his name correctly so i just do it differently every time <laughs> mr mr m kevin mcu um i i really need to learn how to pronounce his name but anyhow i'm so sorry uh i i appreciate all the work you do for mcu i enjoy the mcu has a plan um <laughs> and that is to it seems like release less MCU material and space it out more. So each thing hits a little bit better when you watch it, because he also agrees that the market is kind of oversaturated. Yeah. I I don't think that's a bad plan. (laughs) I don't think it's a bad plan either. I think it's necessary. Uh, I, my own perspective on this is that uh, there's a double-edged sword that everyone acknowledges uh, and that you really only appreciate once things get to an oversaturated point. And that's Marvel's approach to have like this incredible um, uh, expanded universe that all ties in with each other 
to some extent with, you know, some outliers like agents of shield kind of split off from the MCU narrative. The Netflix street hero series are kind of semi canon to MCU, but not really, but still like to, to have like everything that from the middle of phase two, moving forward, being all incorporated and supporting one another, you start to fall into the same traps that the comic books do, which is that it gets Mm -hmm. so complex and things depend so much on you having watched other stuff so that you will have an understanding of what the heck is going on. And the one thing you did want to watch that if things start to, if like the quality starts to dip at all, then everybody suffers, right? Because if every piece is dependent upon every other piece and you get a string of pieces that are of middling to lower quality, you really run in danger of not just superhero fatigue, but specifically Marvel fatigue. Uh, You know, I would argue like the Eternals was a big miss. Ultimately, Mm -hmm. at least for me, the Eternals was a big miss. The Inhumans. uh, Well, Inhumans was a, was a undeniably a miss (laughs) to the point (laughs) where no one even talks about it. (laughs) I think, I think the Eternals was a big miss for most people. Even the people I know who kind of enjoyed it only kind of enjoyed it. Yeah. And then, you know, you had things like, like Spider-Man no way home. I thought was just okay. I know some people really loved it. I, I did not love it. I just thought it was okay. Uh, Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. I did not like, I felt like they did Wanda dirty in that movie. Um, And I do not like how they handled Wanda in the film and that ultimately it, it was a mess. Uh, It had entertaining moments and I loved seeing things like, I love seeing Reed Richards show up in, in a Marvel movie yeah, for all of like a minute, but, <laughs> but like, yeah. uh, you know, it's enough missteps where even like, even if everything were great, I think people would be getting tired, but because not everything has been great, it's making it worse. I agree. And I say this as someone who still loves superhero movies. I will always love superhero movies. I do feel like the last few from MCU haven't been as strong as they could have been or should have been. Um, and again, like I also say this as as an actor who still wants to be cast as Ben Grimm in the Fantastic Four movie. Uh, <laughs> it's not going to happen. You, you don't, don't sound like you grew that. up on Yancey Street. <laughs> I could learn. Look, I have an accent class this evening. Um, not not for Ben Grimm's accent, for a different one. But I could learn. There are plenty of people who learn accents. It took it took Nicole Kidman like two months to learn how to sound like Lucille Ball. I can do it. Um, anyhow, uh, that being said, I do think that um, taking some more time to make sure that the stories are are more different and and diverse and um, really something is a good choice uh also much much like the mcu maybe has run on a little bit more than they should have i feel like we have to today well Um, (laughs) to be fair ariel i also have like about probably 10 minutes of material that i have to cut from this episode so it's not quite as long as it appears on our on our recording i i think it's more like six but okay uh regardless oh if you want to say anything else about mcu jonathan go ahead no, I was just going to say that uh, I think 
you know, focusing on things like making uh, a diverse universe is great. I think that making sure that the stories being told serve the characters and the actors really well is very important because otherwise you stand the risk of being accused of uh, creating works with diversity just for the sake of having diversity, which ultimately is more harmful than helpful. You want to make sure that the stories do service to both the characters and the people performing because mm-hmm. otherwise, you know, it just, it rings hollow and you want all those efforts to be sincere. So, yeah. but I think, I think it's a great goal to have. I think being measured in the storytelling, making sure that each story has its own identity is really important. We've talked in the past about how one of the big problems of, especially the first Marvel film in a new characters franchise typically is introduce character introduce villain who has variant of characters powers have a cgi slugfest at the end and then repeat it happened in mm-hmm. iron man it happened in ant-man it happened in dr strange like we saw it over and over division yeah as good as that show was so like we've seen that story play out so many times that it would be nice to kind of step away from that also i think like Ariel and I both feel that practical effects are always more compelling than lots of an over-reliance on CGI. Now, obviously when you're talking about meta humans with superpowers, there's a limit to what you can do then still make it look really convincing. But the flip side of that is you don't want the end of your movie to look like it was the final boss fight in a PS3 game. Right. Yeah. And, And unfortunately a lot of superhero films, both Marvel and DC fall into that category. So I think there are a lot of things they can do that can help with this. And um, also like addressing some of these issues can help remove some of the criticisms that the superhero genre has received from other filmmakers, which is, you know, like a lot of filmmakers will argue that a superhero movie is not a real film, right? That it's, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's just spectacle and there's nothing to it. Like to give your characters a real emotional grounding to tell stories that are worth telling and to treat superheroes the way that a lot of uh, sociologists would think of it, as in this is this was largely America's version of creating its own mythology. And if you think of it as a mythology and try and tell stories that fall into that sort of mindset, uh, perhaps then you can have some some really entertaining and moving and valuable films as opposed to just we need to print more money. So let's make another Avengers film. I agree. That being said, there are some MC MCU stuff that I am very much looking forward to uh, like echo. Um, I'm super I'm looking, looking forward, forward to the Marvels, to. you know, yeah. I, I really, Maybe the I want to see Kamala Khan again. Yeah. Um, I, I would be go- good with the second season season of Miss Marvel too. Um, I've liked most of their TV stuff, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but absence does make the heart grow fonder. So um, I, I think we both agree this is a, a good move if they can stick to it. Yes. I, uh, I know that it's hard to do because Disney loves money <laughs> a lot. I mean, and- I... I, I know money is the root of all evil, but I can't I, like I like money, too. Well, the love of money is the root of all evil. Money itself is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Um, but, uh, yeah, it just I want to get it there before the comments get to me. 
Okay. 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 But but I yes. also also like this is probably another way of of hedging the fact that we'll probably get fewer series meant for the streaming platform because as we know, as we were talking about earlier today, streaming is really hard to make work from a revenue perspective and we're seeing we're seeing streaming platforms across the entire industry cut back on their expenses. If if it means less series that uh hit me as poorly as uh the book of Bubblefoot did, then um, yeah. I'm, I'm happy that. for that. Okay. Uh well, uh, <laughs> now now we're going to wrap up. Uh, thank you all for going on this delightfully long and uh, winding journey with us today. Um, we've really enjoyed it. Uh, if you've enjoyed it too, or you have thoughts on any of the things that we've talked about, or if you are aware of the Disney Adventures issue that, <laughs> that I mentioned earlier, you can write us and tell us. Uh, Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I will. I will ask you, how Uh should they how do you think that they should do that? (laughs) So what you have to do is you have to go out and buy uh, first edition advanced Dungeons and Dragons rulebook set. So first edition AD&D, which, you know, they don't even call it AD&D anymore, but that's where you start. Then what you have to do is you need to roll up a rogue character and then get a DM to play the Castle Greyhawk adventure. And as you're making your way under the castle, as your rogue, you will encounter this one wall where there is a secret door, but the module maker forgot to put anything in the room behind the secret door. They didn't really forget. See, that's where you have to have your character go and your character has to voice what the question you want to ask us is. And within that module, that question will then transport itself into my brain and I will be able to answer you. Yes. Or um, if you aren't if you aren't certain about that method, uh, you can also reach out to us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, we're Large Nerd Drunk Collider, on Discord, we're Large Nerd Drunk Collider, and on Twitter, we're LNC underscore podcast. Or if you're the lucky people who guessed that this would be the week we got an email, you are right. After going through probably a bunch of emails that we set up and forgot about, so if you had an old email for us, don't use it, we now have a new one. It is Lard... Let me pronounce it so you get it right. Large Nerdron Pod. So, you know, the word large, the word Nerdron, N-E-R-D-R-O-N-P-O-D <laughs> at gmail.com. Look, when you're not looking at it, it can be hard. No, uh, there's listen, too many R's. Listen, I wrote the article, How the Large Hadron Collider Works. I had to do a, a, a find and replace because there were times where I had a transposition in the word hadron that was very naughty. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's less of an issue with us, but very similar. That's hilarious. I love that story. Um, yeah. Also, if you like the show, share it with your friends, um, rate, review us, all that good stuff. Yep. And, un- <laughs> and until next time, I am Ariel Timing Casting. And I am Jonathan. Make a saving throw against lame Strickland. The Large Nerdron Collider was created by Ariel Kasten and produced, edited, published, deleted, undeleted, published again, cursed at, by Jonathan Strickland. Music by Kevin McLeod of Incomptech.com. Incomptech.